Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nighthawk Calling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I don't, I don't think I even really need to do an introduction. He doesn't need one, does he? It's Dan Snow, everyone. Hi, Dan. Yay! <laughs> How are you guys? You're right. Not bad. Where are you? How's lockdown? Well, you know what? Lockdown's not, actually not too bad for me. I'm very lucky. I live on the beach. I'm able to walk out you know, and do my exercise on, on the beach and look at the sea, look at the spot where the D-Day uh, landing craft left from in the Solent uh, 76 years ago. So I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm, a, in a, I'm, I'm very privileged. I'm a, I'm a lot better off than lots of people who are, must be just going crazy, stuck in apartments and things, and particularly in urban areas. 3,000 people turned up at Brockwell Park apparently yesterday to do their exercise. No, on Saturday, and then they shut it on Sunday. I feel further, further measures are coming. What do you reckon? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, look, I'm, I'm not an expert, and I just, but I do feel very sorry for people, and, and they're probably trying to distance themselves. You know, I don't know how big Brockwell Park is, but it may, maybe that's a more shocking statistic than it sounds. And if people are taking those precautions, um, keeping separate, then, then maybe we can use our park sensibly. I, I hope everyone isn't just locked up at home because that's too much, too much too much should we just let's get to some questions let's cheer people up we've got loads of questions for you quite a few actually but uh, i'm looking at the question list now and i can see that uh, the holland brothers actually had this one as well so we're gonna we're gonna throw this one at you too so why not uh gareth blaney asks which historical figure would you like to be leading the fight against the coronavirus well, that is such an interesting question because it really comes... I, I remember once I was making a, a programme about the Spanish Armada and I was talking to Andrew Lambert, the historian, about why no one remembers Sir Francis Drake anymore. And he said, because we don't live in a time that needs drinks. Because we may, we may do one day, you know, but we don't at the moment. And, and so I think what's really interesting, I've been thinking a lot about this, is historically, you know, like the easy thing to say would be like, oh, we need, you know, Pompey the Great or we need... Uh, you know, some phenomenal organizer, one of the one of the absolute brilliant organizers that lay behind Britain's mobilization, the Second World War. But then we're in different times, you know, and I don't think I think it's too easy just to say, oh, if they made them like that anymore, you know, if we had, uh, you know, if we had, I don't know, the energy of someone with like Napoleon Bonaparte, we'd be absolutely fine. And I, I think this this is a new threat. This is a society's. I've never had anything like this before where we're trying to, most of them would have just got taken this on the chin and kept, kept going about their business and just thousands and thousands of people have died. So I think we need a new kind of leadership. 
uh, and we need and we need lead. for me i would say it's leadership i'd like to see leadership by professionals i think in general in society this kind of question of experts i don't understand why politicians still require less training than someone who goes into childcare or um pet management like you know i, I would like to, i i don't see why we've moved on to we can put a sat we can put a sat we can put a land a spacecraft on a passing comet and yet our, our politics is mired in the kind of amateurism and stupidity and and hypocrisy of the Athenian panix. Like, I don't get that. So I think in, in, I'd like to move to a world where people that are really good at things, you know, like, like, like if you're, you know, if you, if you want to run a television channel or a hospital, you've got to know, you've got to have qualifications and experience and having you know, gone courses and things. And so I don't know who I want from history because I'm not sure many people have got the qualifications to run a very modern, sophisticated economy and healthcare response to a, a, a pandemic outbreak so there's a very long answer i'm sorry about this but no um, it's um it's essentially what tom holland said yesterday which is that he didn't oh, yes. want anyone from history <laughs> he said he doesn't want someone from history he wants some epic professional expert with knowledge in this matters to oh, step God, up and blow everyone away and i'm basically absolutely sorted that's you're brilliant. a genius then yeah, I'm yeah. On, the same level, on the same level as big tom uh so so yeah well that's that is kind of my response really but i think someone you know, there are obviously people that have brought extraordinary energy to task in the, in the past, but there are people doing that today. I, I don't think, I don't think, in the First World War, lots of French generals sat around going, Napoleon would have known what to do if he was here. I think that's a really good example. I don't think that's true. You know, the, 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 the Napoleon would have brought vigour, but he doesn't, he doesn't bring extraterrestrial genius to it, you know. And, and the problem with the First World War, it presented a set of problems to military commanders that Napoleon never faced. And I think he would have struggled. You know, Napoleon or Guiderian or Caesar were, were allowed to look amazing because of a particular moment in time. It's due with technology and it's due with the economy, it's due with a balance of forces, due with demographics. But if you put Julius Caesar in charge in, in Douglas Haig's position at the Battle of Somme, I'm not sure Caesar would have automatically made a much better go at it, really, to be honest. He probably would have put himself in the front rank and been wiped out. So, so yeah, that's, so I, I think I'd like to see someone with the energy and organizing capacity of, of like Pomp, you know, Pompey the Great or, or something like that, but, but, uh, but with a lot of medical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. Um, it's one other thing uh, yesterday, the Holland brothers may have slightly besmirched your cricketing ability because someone asked who the best cricketer was out of the three of you, but they did admit that you'd destroy them at rowing. It's very generous of them. I mean, I, I have never played cricket in my entire life, and I went and played one game with them, and I think I scored one run or something. And uh, no, I am terrible at cricket. I'm terrible at most things, to be honest. Uh, but I am I'm all right at rowing. That's true. That's one of my few skills. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Weren't you like captain of the eight at St Paul's or something? Uh, well, uh, no, I don't know if I was captain at school, but I was captain of the Oxford University rowing team. That's true. Back so in the just day, a little bit good the then. <laughs> all right um i want to ask you because i think people scoff at your historical credentials um on occasion because you do such a broad range of programming i mean you did only go to that little known university that little polytechnic known as oxford didn't you after all tell us about your history specialty it's the 18th century isn't it and why did you fall in love with it well i think first of all to address your point i'm i'm uh, i'm totally uh I, I acknowledge that but people are completely right to scoff at me. I mean, it's ridiculous, really. I, I'm a generalist. I got an undergraduate. I was going to pursue postgraduate work and then 
uh, I got an offer from the BBC to go make a programme with my dad, who was a journalist. I mean, it's absurd. My journey has been completely absurd. So I completely defend the right of anyone to call me. Well, they called me a lot worse, I'll tell you. And, and, and my career basically has, has been, you know, attempting to prove that I've got integrity and I kind of know what I'm doing. A lot of my career, of course, is, it's weird. You know, if you look at the podcasts and a lot of programmes, I mean, I'm, I'm there to make other historians look good. I mean, I very, I very rarely do a podcast in which I go, I'm going to tell you all about the Seven Years' War now. Uh, I, I actually spend my time asking questions of other, of other historians. And in the TV work, uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm brought in as a kind of, I'm brought in as a sort of, uh, a, 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 I mean, I wouldn't even say expert presenter, but a presenter that knows about history in a very general sense. And then, I've, of course, you're right, I've made programs about the Stone Age to the Nuclear Age. And you can't possibly be an expert in all those ones. But I like to think I've become a little bit expert in communicating history. So if people want, sometimes I think if people get upset with me calling myself a historian, I'm very happy to call myself a, a history communicator, if that, if that makes people feel better. Because I kind of think that's what I am, really. And I think if somebody, you know, so someone will present me with a great synthesis of, of Tutankhamun's reign or of Churchill's response to uh, the, the defeat in France in the summer of 1940. And I think I'm able to kind of synthesize that down quite well and describe it to people in a general sense and not pretend that research is my own. So to, just to kind of to address that first point, the second point you make is I, 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 I was, you know, in the long 18th century is my first great love and what I was going to do my uh, postgraduate um, studies on. And when I did actually write a book in my 20s, which was a, a proper um, sort of, well, scholarly book on, on the fall of... Quebec in 1759 and so yeah I haven't actually I haven't I still try and keep the reading up but but I'm, I fall behind because I, I love because I get sent hundreds of books for the podcast and I love reading I've just been reading Kate Lister's History of Sex um, I've Rutger Bregman's Hopeful View of Humanity I've just finished Tom Holland's book on Christianity so it's hard I like to keep that reading up because I like to I, a I love being a generalist and I like to kind of try and keep up with people on the podcast but uh, it does also mean that uh, that I mean, yes, I'm doing less on the 18th century than I would like. But yeah, my first love is the 18th century. But so if you want to, if you want to, yeah, we can talk about that. Let's do it. Tell us, tell us what you fell in love with about it and why. Because I'm a moron when it comes to this subject. I'm fully 20th century. So hit me. Oh, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think the long, first of all, it's the long 18th, right? So we steal, 18th century is steal. Uh, we steal the last bit of the 17th and the first bit of the 19th. And, and, as, and frankly, we steal as much of them as possible. Uh, and, and I think that it's a period in which it, it, it's, it, in, some, in some kind of recognisably modern world starts to take shape. If you look at science and industry and uh, finance and, and, uh, and global trade patterns and the, just one thing, simply the, uh, the most of the world being brought into this kind of global uh, society and trading patterns, either willingly or not. If you look at Captain Cook's journeys across the Pacific, uh, filling in huge spaces in the European sense of what the world meant. Uh, and indeed, if you look at the journeys across the continental United States of America and Canada, that all starts to, you start to get a geographical, a complete geographical picture of the world in the 18th century. But you also get people like Herschel doing their bit, you get the scientific revolution, which comes at the end of the 17th, which then in turn leads to, industrial revolutions and, and and if you look at ideas in the 18th century it's when you get mary wollstonecraft talking about uh, feminism equality uh, you know female equality uh, you get uh, you get radicalism you get revolutionary fervor you get the american and french revolutions in in the late 18th century so you, you start to get a, 
and nationalism, for example. So you start to get things that we still regard as essential in our modern world today, both in terms of the stuff we can see around us, cars, combustion engines, steel, iron, things like that, but also the, the way that we look at the world and whether that's the scientific approach to the world, which develops in that period, or the uh, or ideas about, about equality, about... Uh, about how we should organise a society, whether who should be allowed to vote, who should be able to contribute, whether we should have elected head of states or monarchical ones. So I, I think that's why it's so fascinating to me. And it's also a time of gigantic global upheaval as, as the Europeans develop this technological and industrial and, and military edge over other powers. You see kind of the reordering of the world in, in a really profound way that we're only now just emerging from. And whether it's in North America, India, China, or South America, or um, Africa, of course, uh, the, the, those, those patterns start, that, that kind of bizarre era of European hegemony kind of emerges. And we're still living with so many of the racial assumptions and the economic assumptions from that period. And then, guys, if we're going to talk about global warming and the climate cat- you know, catastrophe that we face, I mean, that, has its, that, that was the seeds were sown in the 18th century as Britain realised that you could dig up this black rock from the earth and heat it and create un, un, par, unimaginable energy. Um, and we thought this is uh, fantastic. This is great. And it le- has led to this kind of climate crisis 200 years later. So that's why I love the 18th century and guys and the fashion was awesome. <laughs> I need to pay a little bit more attention to the 18th century after that con- kind of comment. Um, <laughs> I, I know nothing about it, so I'm going to go hide my head in shame. But I, look, Dan, I really want to come back to a point you made earlier, and it's been bugging me since you were talking, and I can't focus and talk about the next question or ask the next question. I don't understand why people don't... I mean, you're a historian, for God's sakes. Just because you deal with it in general, it, it's really frustrating me that people don't call you a historian. You deal with history. You're a historian end of there is no discussion uh, well i mean uh, you know what though i'm not sure i, I mean may, maybe it depends how you define it really i mean I'm, I'm not, i don't have academic tenure uh i, I don't i don't publish peer-reviewed work so i mean i'm very I, I you know what i'm old enough now i used to get very nervous and worried about that kind of stuff and i'm, I'm really I, I can genuinely say one good thing about age ladies you're far too young and and uh scholarly to worry about this you guys but one good thing about age is you do learn acceptance and you learn what, what is important and what makes me happy. And I just consider that I've been so lucky to have the career that I've had. I've met the world's best scholars. I've met some of the most extraordinary veterans of whether it's a war, of scientific breakthrough, of political moments, of, of genocide. I've been incredibly blessed. I've been to some amazing places. And, and therefore, if I have some kind of ambiguity about exactly what I need to call myself, I think that's a, not a bad price to pay. Uh, and I also hope that I also hope that people who do engage, particularly on the history or the podcast, hopefully will see that what I'm trying to do is, is not um, uh, tell everybody about what I think happened in the past, but it's in fact to try and give oxygen and life to some of the, the best historians in the world. That's my plan anyway. And I, look, I get things wrong all the time. I get the tone wrong. I make mistakes. Um, and I deserve all the criticism I get, I think. You are a gentleman, though, for making us sound a lot younger than we are. Alina, um, and exactly. we got a question from Zach. We do have a question from Zach. But this I, is our I'm... Napoleonic historian um, who came on the other day and recorded with us uh, with Sean Bean has got a question for you. So Zach asks, how, if at all, has TV history changed since you started your career? And P.S. 
when all of this is over, can you and your dad sign a copy of your Waterloo book, please? <laughs> yes, yes, I can do that, Zach. I'll make sure we uh, we make that happen. Uh, if you let the let the girls know how we can uh, uh, make make like get in touch. Um, where, where how has history changed? Well, it's changed enormously on television. I mean, I, I am. I'm old enough that I joined in the dying few years of when there were hard, not many TV channels available to most people in the UK. And uh, and so we got these big, very huge audiences, really, for whatever you put on telly, you got these big audiences. It's rather nice. Now, you don't know what audience you're going to get because there's so many channels and, and popular things get very popular, but then other things can really drop between the cracks. And so there were lots of money available, big teams, huge teams of people. You know, when I first went to Egypt, we paid several thousand pounds in excess baggage on the aeroplane. We took cranes and we took all sorts of specialist equipment. Now we could almost make that program with hand luggage only, really. The same quality, in fact, greater quality. You take handheld gimbals, you take a drone that you can put in your pocket, you could take you know, uh, a mini cam that is now many times the definition of the huge camera we used. So that's changed. It's really exciting. It's one of the reasons I set up History at TV because I realized we could make these shows now for much cheaper and quicker than, than we could using traditional television. Um, so that's been, that's one thing. Uh, so um, uh, how, what else has changed? We, we've got less time because there's less budget. So there's less time for that kind of painstaking research used to take place. That's the danger. That's a bad thing. The program's a lot more rushed now, even at the BBC or Channel 5 or something like that. But no, but, but what's changed is that you have to be optimistic about it. What's changed with the positivity is that we're able to do, you know, we've got satellite archaeology, we've got drones, we've got LIDAR, we've got tiny little cameras that I can strap to myself as I clamber down robber tunnels underneath Pompeii in the ash, you know, set in the hardened of volcanic debris down there. So, so it's, it's, it's more flexible, it's more, and I think it's more exciting. And of course, we've got social media, so I can live stream while I'm doing it, I can podcast, I can do all sorts of stuff that was impossible in the old days. Yeah, I mean, you, you make good points on both sides of it. Um, King, of King of Ithaca would like to know, what period of British history do you think is conventional wisdom most wrong about? King of Ithaca. Well, it's hard, isn't it, what conventional wisdom is, really. I think... I, 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 I do think that probably... And I'm guilty of this, but there is a perception in Britain that the British Empire is quite well loved around the world, and that Britain, like unlike the Portuguese and the Belgians, that Britain, like everyone's like, oh yeah, we we love, you know, British Empire is really good. And I do think that we don't think uh, critically enough about that uh, and the enormous, enormous impact we made in the world. Uh, and, and I think I find it difficult to talk about in terms of good and bad, but I mean. You know the, you know the, the catastrophe of Indian partition, the uh, you know an, 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 the, the, the annihilation of of Native Americans in the 17th century, and then on, and then after that, of course. And so, I, I think we probably still. And, you know, it's difficult for me because my grandpa. I, I mean, I'm from a family of imperialists now. I mean, it's you know the, my great grandfather fought fought in the Zulu War. My gramps fought in the old grand fought in the Second World War, obviously, and my other great great grandfather was a nabob in India, working for the East India Company. Uh, so, like, I'm descended from like people who I grew up thinking were sort of impressive, daring do heroes, but who other people that I've now met and talked to in India, Africa, Caribbean, other cultures, 
go, yeah, you know, your great, 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 great grandfather was a slave trader, but don't let that worry you. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that's, it's something that we've never had a reckoning with, unlike Germany or other parts of the world. So I, I, I do think, I, I'm both at the same time, I, 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 you know, I'm, 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 I love Britain. I think it's a wonderful place. And I love our history. In a, in a, in a, I just love our history. I love HMS Victory. I love everything it represents. I love, you know, I, I find it fascinating. I'm really curious, Dan, if uh, your answer right now is going to carry on to the next question. Okay, go on then. Which is, again, from Zach, our lovely Zach, which historical event would you force everyone to learn about in school if you could? That's really, that is really hard. I've, goodness me, I don't know really. Um, I, that is really hard. Do you know, you know, it's a funny old thing. Uh, a lot of people think history, it's, it's, been, it's, been dead, it's been dead white guys for a long time. And, and I think living in an era of Amazon and of Netflix and of Uber, and now living in this era of coronavirus, I think that we, I do think that medical and technological and scientific history is really, really important. And I'm not sure that we, I don't think I'm, I'm here just going like, Kids don't know enough William, about William Pitt the Elder. I mean, I would like them to know about William Pitt the Elder, but I'm not sure it's the end of the world if they don't know about it. And, and I do wonder whether we should be teaching them about what we, what we did to the planet by moving to a, an economy that was dependent on hydrocarbons. And, and also, by the same token, what we, the, the millions and millions of lives that, that have been saved by antibiotic drugs and the fact that by build, the diseases building up antibiotic resistance is the great, one of the greatest threats we face. Like I, I think those stories from our history, which aren't Tutankhamun and aren't Napoleon and aren't Florence Nightingale, I think those are things that we neglect. And then, but they're things that people are really interested in and then we're surprised people aren't interested in the history. If people think history is Henry VIII, you can't really blame them for not finding Henry VIII particularly important in the moment of coronavirus, right? But if people think history is like mankind's struggle to deal with environmental breakdown, which in turn leads to cross, cross you know, diseases jumping from species to humans, like Ebola did. I learned this week that Ebola jumped back into the human population in West Africa a few years ago because of massive deforestation. So all these bats have been in the trees then started to move into areas where there was human habitation and the kid was playing in amongst these bat feces and, and picked up Ebola from it. So, so that I think is history, but it's talked about like as medicine or science or something else. And I, 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 think, I think learning about the, the industrial revolution and the scientific revolutions and all that has come from that probably, I mean, they're big things to learn, but I, I think it's that. So I don't think there's one particular event like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand or, or, or the creation of the EU that I think is, is what I would teach them. My head hurts with that answer. That's such a good answer. But bats again, what is it with bats? They're a menace. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mate, they're a menace. Don't go near them. Let them have their trees. Don't put <laughs> their goddamn trees down and don't eat them. Just let them just go like, we'll let you do your thing. You, we'll do our thing, all right? And the world will be a better place. Ask me the vegan burger grown in a goddamn factory in Palo Alto, California. <laughs> okay, Merrin Waters. This is a really good question, actually. And you posted something about your, your dad and how awesome he was the other day. I saw it on Twitter. Do Dan and his dad feel the same way about most historic events? And do they share the same views on the importance and methods of documenting history today? One generation apart, are generations influencing history? Yeah, no, I think, you know what, Dad and I do have some quite interesting disagreements now. I I think, you know, Dad was brought up in an era of empire. And I do think that he and I do disagree now in some of the, some of the, some of the, you know, some of our, some of our approaches to like British rule in India and Africa. I do think we probably don't agree on things like empire very much. You know, my dad's dad was the governor of Gibraltar. He was the military governor of part of Libya after the Second World War. He, my dad grew up in that world. So I think he, he, he saw, he, had to, he believed that Britain was like a, you know, I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm further removed from that. I don't, I don't have that innate sense of like how natural it is that Britain should be ruling the world and, and people of different skin colours kind of running around as, you know, when we say jump, they say oh hi. And I do suspect that I think my dad has that innate, you know, um, like I probably worry more about the legacy of the slave trade than he does, I think would be my answer. So yeah, I do think generations. And, and he, yeah, and so he also thinks that great men and women are more important than I do. I'm kind of a bit more like, oh, no, it's all about systems, man. It's all about technology. It's all about, <laughs> it's all about climate. And he's just like, no way. Edward I totally changed everything. <laughs> God love him. Do you know, I actually, I agree with you because it's, um, it, it, it's happened in my family as well from the hatred of, of Russians and Germans. But that's a whole different other kettle of fish. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's talk about the next question, which I like. This is my favourite question because I think it's a great question to ask every historian. And it comes from Emily James. If he could time travel, where would he go? Well, that is, you know, everyone, uh, that's the hardest one, isn't it? I mean, I think there was a pretty cool party in fifth, it was a symposium in 5th century BC Athens where um, basically Alcibiades, uh, and Plato and, you know, like a couple of their mates got, um, I think Aristophanes was there. In fact, Socrates was there as well. And so basically you've got like some of the most brilliant humans that have ever lived. Um, Alcibiades, a flawed but extraordinary military commander and politician. Socrates, probably the greatest philosopher of all time. Aristophanes, definitely a top 50 playwright and then Plato. And if that happened, it's, I think it, I can't remember, but I think there's some disagreement about whether or not that symposium actually happened. But if it happened, uh, it would be amazing. I think, was it, no, it would have been fourth century BC probably. It was after, yeah, so fourth century. 
So uh, that would have been fun to be there. I would love to have watched the Battle of Trafalgar from the safety of a helicopter. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I just, uh, you know, every period, God, you know, watching the, watching the burial of an old kingdom pharaoh among the pyramids. I mean, it's amazing stuff, right? I mean, I, I, frankly, if I had that time machine, I'd just want to go back anywhere. Just, just, I, just the, every period I get into, I just discover more and more astonishing things I wish I could have seen. I think mine would be this riotous 4th of June Etonian dinner on the Western Front in 1917 where they broke all the tables and uh, someone squeezed an orange in a brigadier's eye and they ended up oh, hoisting yeah. someone. It, yeah. 400 of them i know they did actually then someone's job one of the adjutants job was to go around all the units and have a whip round to repair all the damage and actually the owner of the house managed to renovate his entire house afterwards so they generously made up for it and atoned oh interesting yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, how did i know yours would be world war one alex how did i know but safely behind the lines of course um kane carlisle would like to know what thing did you enjoy most studying at university um, I loved studying. I, I actually, I loved doing the First World War. My tutor was Neil Ferguson, and we had a really interesting time talking about the First World War, challenging all the myths about you know bad generals or good generals. He's on my uh, list of people to uh, harass for this podcast. Actually. No way, you should. <laughs> yeah. um, so I would, I would definitely say that. I mean, I was very lucky. I studied Ashley Jackson, great historian. Studied the British Empire with him. It was fantastic. Uh, Simon Skinner, we studied uh, 18th century British political history, it was just heaven. So, um, you know, I, I, that, yeah, I mean, that's not a good answer, but those were the ones, I mean, I just, I just loved, I was so lucky to go to university and love what I did, you know, I couldn't wait, I just couldn't get enough of it, really. Um, so, go and study history if you're listening to this and you're making decisions and you're at, stu- at school. You know, friends of mine just had a miserable time, and, and I just loved it. So, get, get involved in a bit of history at undergrad. I think it's time to do a bit of plugging. Do you think so, Alex? Yeah, let's do it. Let's plug it because Dan's got far, far more content online to entertain you during this crisis than we have. Exactly. So, Jim, I'll start with a question. So, Jim asks, when's Battlefield Britain coming to History Hit in full? So, tell everyone what they can get on History Hit during the lockdown because there's just endless entertainment. Well, that's very kind of you. Battle for Britain, we, I'm, trying to get, I'm trying to wrestle it off the BBC. That's the problem. It's taking a while to get on that history. But, uh, we have got a lot of shows. We've got hundreds of documentaries on there. We've got, uh, we've got nearly a thousand podcasts up on there now. So um, we got, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So we've got lots and lots of stuff. We got recently, I'm really proud of the recent one. We got the House of Commons led us in to the House of Commons, which I've never been in there before. And they, um, and so we filmed, I stood at the dispatch box where Churchill made his speeches from and then made a program about Churchill, you know, that sort of stuff and, and about other great speeches, Lloyd George, um, other speeches in the, in the House of Commons. That's your great granddad, isn't it? I, I, my my favourite guy. <laughs> yeah, of course, one of yours, yeah. He, he was my mum's, mum's, mum's dad. Yeah, he's my great, great grandpa, yeah. But your family was the first wife, right? Yeah, with the proper wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. the proper wife. Yeah. Um, I found the first wife. Yeah, poor old Frances Stevenson. She was my great great aunt's. Sorry, my great aunt's. No, my great great. Apologies. She was my great great aunt's tutor, uh, and then mysteriously became David Lloyd's lover. But but you know they were they were in love and they were extraordinarily fond of each other. So I shouldn't say that as a member of the family, but it was actually 
It's actually rather an amazing relationship, I think. Um, so how it, can, happens, dude. it happens. We're all human. How can people sign up for History Hit, Dan? You know what? They can sign up for History Hit. They can sign up. They go to historyhit.tv. Um, if they use the code, because it's a podcast, if they use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, they will get a month for free and they get the first month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So uh, get uh, get a piece of that. Get two months of the world's best history channel for just one pound, euro or dollar. Go and check it out. That's great value. So Dan, next question. Um, Andy would like to know, I think because he ran the vote, how did you um, vote in that Twitter poll of Great War Literature? What did you go for? There were lots of different categories, but did you, yeah. did you cast a vote? Well, obviously, uh, Alex, I voted for everything you've written, um, but I would also, <laughs> I may also Good have voted for, I may also voted for uh, Hugh Strawn's first volume of the First World War, which got me through, I'll never forget it, because it got me through that paper at university. In fact, it was a great story, because I got a copy before it was published, because someone sent it to my aunt to review, and she goes, I haven't got time to read it, but if you want it. So I had this giant book with all this sort of new research, so I went into my finals and, and was like writing all this stuff about like the, the, the iron content of the fireboxes of the Austro-Hungarian steam locomotives. And I knew this was like super fresh and, and the examiner probably wouldn't have like known about it. And I was just thinking, this is just awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Do you know I what? I did that in my A-level English. I got a perfect score because I went in and you know, the unseen World War One literature, it was uh, a letter from a pilot. Um, totally unknown pilot, but I have the entire collection of his letters at home, so I knew everything no about him. Yeah, it's brilliant. Suck on that, whichever examining board did that. But yeah, good fun when stuff like that happens. I've never been so lucky. <laughs> Who's next? Diane Holmes. So, of all the documentaries you've made, not the commemorative programmes, which one taught you the most? Well, that's a really good question. I think probably, if I'm being honest, it was probably the programme made on Shellshock very recently for the BBC because actually it really did sort of force me to stop and think about... When, when Sometimes when you're making programmes like War in particular, you can kind of go, oh, 10,000 men, not, not bad casualties, blah, blah, blah. And when you meet individuals whose lives have been destroyed by war and conflict in, a, in, a, and in an enduring way, deep into their 90s, you know, still having nightmares about things they saw when they were 20... Um, I learned a huge amount and, I, and it reminded me that, that I need empathy and I need to just, you know, I have, I have to have that. And, um, and so that was a very a profoundly moving experience. Um, okay, this one's from me then. Which one have you been in the middle of filming and you've just thought, bugger this? Oh, never really. Um, no, never. I, I've always not even if you got like torrentially rained on or just the. Oh yeah, sometimes, sometimes. You know, I was once working with an alcoholic that was a bit challenging, but uh, I've always, I've always believed, and I still do, that a bad day filming a history program is better than a good day in an office. This is true. Um, we've got just to finish. We've got to round off four questions. Like they're downright mean, really. They're quite niche. They're quite specific. And I wonder if people are trying to catch you out. But you've got stones. You're going to take them on, Alina. Who's first? But we've got an aeroplane question, and I'm not good with technology, so bear with me if I pronounce anything incorrectly. <laughs> this one's from Zach White. Yeah, please laugh because it is actually <laughs> hilarious. Um, so Zach White asks. Now, bear with me. The Fokker triplane, did I pronounce that correctly? Yep, you're good so far. Okay, good. Okay. 
The Supermarine Spitfire. That one I do know. Yeah, yeah. if you got that wrong, we'd slap you. Next. <laughs> <laughs> or the Eurofighter Typhoon, which, if any, represented the most impressive development in air warfare for its time. Spitfire. There Spitfire. we go. I'd go, I'd go Fokker just because I don't know enough about the other two. Why Spitfire? Well, I think the, the, the various... I mean, obviously, all these things are kind of incremental improvements on what's gone before. But I think you could... You, 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 look, tragically, I mean, I, I, I love the Typhoon as much as the next guy, but I think it's hard to argue it's, it's better than it, its equivalent US offering, uh, for example. And therefore, but whereas the Supermarine Spitfire was the best piston engine fighter in the world at the time, its armament was an issue, uh, and it, and it wasn't perfect. That's why it was. That's why the you know the Mark One had needed significant upgrades. But I think in terms of its its just its speed, its agility, its ability to climb, uh, it was it was just extraordinary, and it was at the very least. Um, as good as the Messerschmitt 109, and as a result, uh, you know, proved proved incredibly important. But yeah, I think so, so. I think it sort of, I mean, it's it's telling that it's the only aircraft in the Second World War that was on the front line from the first day until the last line uh, until the last day of the war. I think what you said there as well, the Fokker triplane. Again, I don't know that you could argue that it was that much better than the British equivalents in World War One. If you were going to pick out like the Camel or the SE five A. So, yeah, you, you, I think you're probably right there with a Spitfire. Uh, Nigel Barnett, <laughs> just going back in time 100, 100 years, in Napoleon's Russian campaign of 1812, Cossacks were able to operate effectively like a guerrilla force, keeping out of sight and attacking behind enemy lines. We never appeared to use any of those tactics on the Western Front in World War I. Um, could we not have done that as the front was developing in late 1914? Like I'm immediately thinking two different types of campaign and artillery, but go for it. <laughs> like all first world war historians, you just go artillery. Yep. Um, uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of or as Peter Hart calls them, big bangy things. Big bangy things. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's with the cannon that one makes war, as Napoleon said. So I think that the different, I think the geography is different in, on the Eastern front and the Western front. I think, there just wasn't enough space to have those. You know, we, we forget in, over here in little old England that you know, the space that's out east, the, the, the Pripyat marshes, you know, there are, there are big chunks of land over which there, there is not a transport infrastructure, a, a government. You know, there are just, I don't think there's the space in northern France and Belgium to have armies that just disappear into great big marshy, in untra- you know, difficult bits of land, be they mountains, I mean, we've got the Ardennes, which is a kind of candidate, I suppose, but obviously that fell very quickly in, in the campaign. But, you know, and in fact, in the Second World War, you do get that kind of SAS mission, don't you, in the Ardennes, uh, or in the Vosges. Is it in the Vosges? Anyway, the, 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 you get in the sort of the mountainous regions where you can kind of realistically see how you could ev- avoid and es- escape and avoid uh, the enemy, evade the enemy. I just don't think the geography lets you do that. Um, and I think... It would be uh, for a, for an army like the German army in the First World War. It would be pretty simple to do a couple of big sweeps and to sort of stamp out any of that kind of activity, really. But um, Alex, what do you think? Because you're the expert there. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, I just like you said, I think one of them, Napoleon, is actively trying to invade a massive country in 1812. Um, and in 1914, that's not quite what's happening. Late 1914, we're trying to stop um, the Germans from invading a country. So they're two completely different types of campaign. And also um, just the sheer scale of artillery. I, th I think it was a very different war to what everyone was expecting. They were all expecting beforehand for it to be a war of movement and for it to resemble the Napoleonic campaigns. But it very quickly, even by that point, um, it was not that kind of war. And they were trying to get to grips with that. So that's my rubbish answer. <laughs> Can I just say, I'm so glad I am not sitting in Dan's position right now, because if some of these questions start coming up for me, I'd be sitting there going, um... He's owning them, though. Give him Lane? another one. I'll give him, an I'll give him <laughs> another one. Right, now we're going further. In no, wait, which way? We're going... We're going back this way now. Yeah. yeah, we're going back more modern now, with a question from Martin Lamb. In your opinion, if we didn't lose the helicopters on SS Atlantic Conveyor, I think it was, excuse me if I'm wrong, how quickly would have the Falklands War would have lasted as the Paris and Marines wouldn't have had to yomp it across the island? Yeah, I think you're right. It was Atlantic Conveyor and there would have been a lot less yomping. The, the Chinooks would have been able to carry vast amounts of men and stores rather than to walk across. Um, I think uh, it's always counterfactual. Like I don't know how many days shorter it would have been, but I think it would have been shorter. <laughs> And it would have been much easier to relocate things like light guns and, and uh, move um, even armoured vehicles around. And I think the armoured vehicles is a sort of forgotten story of the Falklands War and they could have been used more uh, and, and perhaps they would have been if there'd been more heavy lift capability around. But yeah, I, I think that was a, the, the, the plan, which was land all of your troops on the western edge of East Falkland and then just hop them across with helicopters kind of came a bit unstuck when the helicopters all disappeared, lots of them disappeared. So um, I think it would have been a lot less, uh, a lot less tough for the men involved on those final hill battles if they'd had a bit more lift capability. But I can't answer how many days because I mean, that's, a, you know, that's one of those imponderables. It's a good enough answer for me, considering we've just done nearly 200 years of military history and three questions you had absolutely not heard before we started recording this. Um, Last one that we'll talk to you with, Bagas wants to know, what's your take on the last battle on English soil? What's my take on which one it is? Uh, um, I guess so. I mean, I've wikipedia it and it says Culloden. The Battle of Culloden in 1746, although <laughs> there, is some, there is some debate about that, the, the, you know, whether we should include some of the kind of police and military actions against rioters and things. There's something called the Battle of Bossenden Wood in the 19th century, which people keep correcting me, and they say that was the last battle. But uh, I think the last shots fired with a foreign enemy on English soil were actually when a German bomber crashed in either Kent or, uh, or somewhere in the Thames estuary, and there were shots fired, uh, and um, there was a brief, brief firefight before the British arrested them, captured them. But um, what, I don't know what my take on Culloden is. I, I guess it's... I don't have a particular take, other than that, obviously... Uh, Astonishing charge on pretty uh, flat ground by the Highlands, by the Highlanders, particularly on their right wing, the southern wing, which crashed into the British lines. Barrels regiment disintegrates. Extraordinary moment of crisis as the, the south end of the British line kind of forms a great concave bulge. And then the Highlanders find themselves caught, almost like, almost like the Battle of Canny, it's a miniature Battle of Canny, in this terrible, terrible ring of fire that they then 
they then can't take, uh, they, 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 there's appalling, you know, they can't take the appalling punishment and they retreat. Uh, but I, and then, and, uh, so yeah, I haven't got a particular take on it, um, really. Uh, but if he wants to follow up with another question, I can, I can do my best. Excellent. Well, we'll see if he comes back on Twitter. He's very active on our Twitter feed. He's loving this podcast. Um, Alina, I, I think we've got one more question we'd like to ask Dan, and then we'll, we'll leave him be. We have one more question, but I'm going to be really cheeky. And before we ask this one question, I'm going to throw in another question. But all I need from Dan is a yes or a no. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Did Hitler survive? Oh, enough. (laughs) (laughs) Let's ask Luke. Let's ask Luke Daly Groves. He's been amusing himself endlessly on Twitter with uh, Hitler's Luke's Luke's a machine. He like I like the way he just pokes the crazies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's on it, man. He always tags the Holocaust deniers and brings me into the conversation, and then I have to try and rip them down, and then. But the thing is. The thing is, Luke lets it all wash over him in a hilarious fashion. You get actually wound up by each and every one of them. <laughs> I, I need to learn to just let it go. You do, but don't sing the song. We haven't got time for the song. I can't sing. Nobody wants me to sing. No, Let's get don't. on to this last question for Dan. So, have you got any book ambitions? We've all got a one day I'd love to write this. Uh, well, yeah, I guess well, I'll share. I don't want to tell people this, but one day I would love to write a history of, of ships and the sea and just go through every single innovation. Start with like a, like a, a, um, a, a dugout or, or a little coracle and end up on a super carrier and just talk about all the pieces of that journey that got us there and just spend all my time out at sea and testing them and sailing them and, and knocking about in the engine rooms and the latter ships. And, and I, I would love to do that. That sounds so amazing. Alina's just been sick in her mouth because that's not her thing at all. But that would <laughs> be awesome. Because we had to do a whole down the pub session. We do a down the pub on a Friday night to amuse people with like a pub debate. And because she was so rude about naval history, we did a what's the greatest ship of all time. And actually we had uh, Chris Dobbs on from the Mary Rose and he won because uh, he just wowed everybody with tales of bringing her up and what he'd found. And yeah, but Alina, she just refers to them all as boats and it's very frustrating. I'm really sorry, Dan. I really respect all of your work, but I wouldn't buy that one. I'm really sorry. Oh, I'd, bu- I'd buy it and it'd, it'd be heavy and I'd club her with it for you. Deal? Oh, perfect. <laughs> Dan, thanks so much for joining us and answering everybody's questions. It's been really good to turn the tables and sort of hear your opinions on some things and hear you talk about your love of history as opposed to getting it out of everybody else. Um, no thank you uh right join us tomorrow in case you haven't heard i don't know where the hell you've been if you haven't tomorrow we have sean bean we have sean bean jason salke who was rifleman harris and we have a napoleonic historian and it's basically a riotous hour of giggling filming anecdotes stories about making sharp intermingled with history to keep you amused on easter sunday i'm very excited are you excited alina I'm really excited. That was a blast. That was such a blast, guys. Amazing. Right. Remember, people, stay safe. And more importantly, if you can, stay at home. This is Nighthawk signing off. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 